Hello and welcome to The Tradecast. Uh, my name is John Bakey, I'm Head of Digital for The Trade and this is a very special Tradecast because some of you may know we've got the 50th edition of The Trade. It's going to be coming out uh, and hitting your desk a little bit later this year. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by the uh, the Trade Next Generation crew with John Watkins here, editor of our print titles, uh, joining me. And uh, even more excitingly, we've got the original series cast, so we've got... <laughs> John Lee, Robert Kay, and Richard Swartz all joining us. Hello, Hello. gents. Hello. Hello. Uh, now, for those of you that don't know, these guys were the, uh, the founders of the trade, set up the uh, original concept many years ago. Do you remember when, gents? So perhaps a, a good place to start would be uh, at the beginning. At the beginning, absolutely. Whose uh, whose bright idea was it to uh, to set up the trade in the first place? It was Robert's idea to to address that gap in the market. Yeah, it was, and we actually had started the conversation about two years prior to that. And yeah, we actually did a um, we did a one-off issue uh, focused on. Uh, transaction cost analysis and electronic trading um, and the timing wasn't necessarily auspicious um, but a couple of years after that uh, I wouldn't let go of the idea uh, so I kept on coming back to John and Richard saying I think this is a good idea eventually I actually sold uh, part of my transaction cost analysis business to City at the time, uh, they wrote a check to me and the other founders of that business. Uh, so then I went to John Richard and said I was willing to actually underwrite uh, the cost of a number of issues. Uh, and on that basis, they were willing to put them together. Um, so I think that was really the genesis as to how it started. In fact, my underwriting commission commitment was never uh, required uh, because, in fact, the magazine was profitable from the first issue. Yeah, now I've got a, I mean, in terms of a, 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 got quite a nice little story in terms of how we launched the first issue because we went round and started speaking to people in the market. That I think there was a crossing net network then called eCrossNet at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And I remember going in there and uh, speaking to the, the CEO and they, they'd actually undertaken uh, some research into what buy-side traders read. Uh, and, you know, there's an auspicious list of, of Kind of blue chip financial titles, and uh, top of the list with the sun and the mirror, they found. So, what what people don't realise, you actually look at the trade logo when we designed it. It's not dissimilar to the sun's logo. Uh, so <laughs> it created a, a kind of sense of comfort amongst the readership back in two thousand and four that maybe they were, you know, 
page three was the was definitely the 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 kind of most read page where we, we introduced some some you know really kind of sexy data. We think. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, we struggled with trying to find a name, so we thought about buy side trader and buy side horizons, and none of them had any. You know, there was nothing in them that made you think that the people would pick up a magazine mm. with that title. And so when we realised that the trade that uh, the Sun and the Mirror were, yeah, and I think popular, I, we yeah, no, I think I think trade. one of the you know one of the more sometimes sometimes the most ingenious ideas are the simplest ideas, and I think in terms of actually getting brand recognition for that, actually doing it as a, the kind of small size it is rather than the traditional A4 that most people launch magazines. Mm. And the story of that was I was basically just travelling into the office one day and I asked another cop. Cop, you know, there's an A4 size of Cosmopolitan magazine, and then a smaller version. I thought, well, that that looks pretty neat. And uh, and so and, and and I do remember people would, you know, in the early days, because it gained incredible traction in a short mm -hmm. period of time. I mean, as Robert said, that you know, while he, he you know he, he was willing to underwrite it, it, you know, there was never a cash call because it, it was successful from day one in many respects. Um, and I had people in those early days come up to me and say, oh. That's a little magazine, isn't it? <laughs> so they remembered it was that kind of pocket-sized magazine, and, and, and I think what we've seen, and you know, as the years have gone by, some of our competitors who you know began life as A4s have actually adopted that kind 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 of size. But um, um, and, and again, I, I think you know, you know, we had Simon Thompson on the on the front cover of the first edition, and another key decision, but again, a simple one, was. We're only ever going to have buy side traders on the front cover. I mean, in the early days, the number, you know, kind of six, seven issues in when it had really started gaining traction, the number of times people would come up and, you know, on the sell side, say, when are you going to put a broker on? When are you going to put a broker on the front cover? You know, we spend X amount with you, when are you going to put? And Marth was always never. And that certainly helped with immediate take up because the person on the front cover was recognized both by their buy side colleagues and by their sell side that was after their business. So there was an immediate reason to pick up the magazine. Yeah, there was a bit of excitement in the marketplace in terms of you know who, who's going to be who's going to feature on the on the front cover in the next edition, um, and, and you know you want to create that kind of buzz around. It's something we'd all, all mm -hmm. done as a as a group before, and you know when we one of our earlier businesses, GSCS Benchmarks, um, where we you know we used to it was almost kind of rent a quote to the FT in terms of in terms of um, kind of clearing and custody. And I think the choice of Simon Thompson turned out to be a good one uh, for the first cover um, because he was seen as somewhat different from the traditional buy-side traders, many of whom had come up from open outcry pits mm -hmm. or wh wherever it was, um, but essentially um, were not necessarily uh, intellectual in terms of training or education, whereas Simon was a Cambridge graduate. Uh, and therefore much more focused on analysis of performance and use of technology to improve things. Whereas at that time, a lot of traders were still quite happy writing out pink or green tickets uh, and passing them over their shoulder to somebody and dealing with people over the phone, uh, make, making prices over the phone and making mistakes. So from that point of view, um, he, was a, he was an embodiment of a new style of trading, which effectively the trade uh, was reflecting in its editorial. Um, I think the other thing that struck me always was um, we put uh, a fellow called Mark Harding, who was at the time 
at uh, Perpetual out in Henley as a trader. Um, and I always remember him, um, you know, wanting to get extra copies because it was the first time it, you know, he had ever featured in anything and actually it was a really big deal for him, I just on a purely personal basis, not so much on a career basis, although for some people it was from a career point of view, but for him on a personal basis to see his name and a photograph of himself in a magazine was a big deal. Um, so after and, a couple of editions, did you have people queuing up at the doors to be on the, on the cover? Yeah, and I, I think what's important as well, I mean, you've got to remember it was a, it was a tipping point in the industry. I mean, you know, if, if someone was to ask me why did we set it up, I mean, the, the short answer was yes, we can talk about the impact of, you know, the whole area of e-commerce, the internet and so on and so forth. But if you actually look at the relationship between the sell side and the buy side, I mean, that relationship had been, it had been built on pure relationships. And suddenly brokers found they were competing on service for the first time. You know, yeah. the, the algorithm, you know, the algorithms they, they were um, kind of selling to the buyers, which were very simple in those days. You know, they were kind of the web algorithms that, you know, to kind of clear the noise. And there's actually any kind of liquidity seeking. But it was also a time when, when buy-side desks were experimenting with algorithms, so they hadn't all made up their mind. So that was an, an attraction for the buy-side, the fact that we covered that area. Well, I do remember, I mean, I interviewed Simon Thompson and the very first question for the very first interview to go into the very first article in the trade was how self-sufficient you want to be. Mm. And to which the answer was, um, not that, not that self-sufficient. Yeah. You know, because they still, could it still come out of that kind of world, even though BGI was the biggest kind of asset manager at that time, it come out of that world of, of relationships the sell side and the buy side you know it was who you know who you picked up the phone to that would actually actually transact for you but suddenly we entered this world where and that's why it took off and there was that sell attraction they were suddenly they were suddenly competing on service and that went into the whole area of algorithmic trading beyond that into into, into dark pools and did you find it uh, tricky at first to, to kind of get Buy side, I suppose, particularly for the first issue to get a buy sider on the cover because certainly, you know, my memory of B2B publishing in general is, especially the financial sector, it's always been very focused on the PMs and for the asset managers, those are the guys that they want to push out there to, uh, you know, to, to everybody reading those magazines. And, and even today, you know, I find sometimes you can call up a buy side press office, ask to speak to a trader, and they're like, oh, are you sure you wouldn't rather speak to the portfolio manager because that's kind of how they're, they're set up? Was that a challenge? And, and do you feel like it? what you did kind of changed the approach to traders and there was a bit more of a focus on them as, as personalities rather than guys that were tucked away in the basement trading, trading stocks? I have no recollection at all of how we got Simon Thompson on the cover. Well, it's good that you, you mentioned that because it actually there was a long process of negotiation around that because the, the first thing that they came back and said to me was, well, what's in it for BGI? Yeah. And there wasn't a great deal in it for BGI. Um, however, what, what you, you know, we really, you know, it, it, it really kind of sparked uh, interest in the market. I mean, again, back to Robert's point about Mark Harding, you know, people had never spoken to heads of desks before and shown interest in what they wanted to do. And I think our strap line was important, working for the buy side. Mm. You know, and going back to what I said about never having a broker on the front cover, we, we were there to represent the buy side, their, their wishes and needs, to really comment on that sometimes strained relationship between the sell side and the buy side. You know, if you're covering algorithmic trading, we were a lot in the early days, you know, are we getting the same algorithms that the, that the brokers are using? 
Um, so, you know, it's quite a strange relationship. We were the voice of the buy side. And I think once people saw that's how we positioned the brand, then a lot of momentum uh, built up behind it. Okay. And maybe just to, might be good to go back a little step further um, and, and just kind of get an idea of, you know, how you guys got into this in the first place. I mean, Robert, we know you, you've mentioned that sold your TCA business at probably a time when TCA was a relatively niche uh, concept compared to what it is now. Um, and, and Richard and John, how did you sort of come about and, and get into this and, and I suppose how did you explore the world of trading in the early days? Well, in fact, the three of us had worked together previously on another magazine called GSCS Benchmarks, which was a custody-focused uh, magazine. Um, and we had sold that and then gone our separate ways. And among the things that I was doing, I created a TCA business, which was very much a niche business at that time. Um, I think that what was what was quite interesting about it in the context of the magazine and to, to go back to the personalities, I mean, I remember in, when I was at Morgan Stanley, the way that Morgan Stanley got block positions done for a client, so somebody says, I want to buy 100,000 IBM or I want to sell 100,000 IBM, basically the head of the desk at Morgan Stanley would pick up the phone and say, we've got 100,000 shares of IBM to go if you were selling them, and 40 people would pick up the phone and all start dialing their favorite or least favorite customers, depending on whether they thought it was a good deal or a bad deal. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that was, that was how it was done. And there were multiples of those conversations in any given day, um, because Morgan Stanley was a big trading house. When they, when they themselves moved to algorithmic trading, one of the things they did was basically fire most of their uh, sales traders. So suddenly they realized that they had no way of effectively communicating and I think it's important not just what the content of the magazine is but why from a commercial point of view people wanted to advertise and from a timing point of view the big sell side firms realize that having um, if you like downsized dramatically their sales trader connectivity with the buy side traders they actually didn't have any um, so once you put an algorithm in you were never actually going to speak to anybody again because yeah. unless it didn't work, which is not the best basis uh, for a conversation. So from their point of view, this was a way for them to continually reinforce their brands in front of people who they thought were gonna be reading the magazine. Um, so I think that was important. So we'd done a publication before, and this was just a, a uh, publication with a different focus. And John and I had been working together. And I Forever. Yeah, <laughs> we met at a, an early online uh, news data site. Data site. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember we used to modem the stories down to the to so the clients twice a day. Oh, okay. Um, and then we uh, John went off to edit a magazine called ICB. I think is that right? Oh yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. And then about correspondent banking. And then after a few years, we set up our own business where we As you can see, we've been moving yeah. progressively up the excitement yeah. curve here. <laughs> <laughs> Correspondent banking through payments, through custody, and finally into the uh, into the heady heights of uh, the trading fraternity. Okay. Um, now, 12 years is uh, quite a long time, and, and no doubt a lot has happened since, uh, since that first issue uh, came off the printing presses. Um, but what what do you think for, for you guys it was the sort of single 
uh, biggest event, and I think I probably know what the answer to this might be before I even ask the full question, but what was the single biggest event that affected the industry? I could have three different ones there. So. And you can't say you can't <laughs> say the launch of the trade, I'm afraid. No, okay. Um, shall I keep this off and we'll go around the table? Because I'm actually going to look at, I'll leave it to Robert to talk, maybe talk about the, uh, not wanting to put words in his mouth, but to talk about the actual industry per se. But I actually think on a, on a kind of macroeconomic or generic level, uh, there are two events that, that really kind of really stand out for me. One is obviously the market crash, mm-hmm. uh, 2008-2009. Um, I actually remember at the time I was actually chairing a panel of brokers at Cybos of all things. I mean, talking about this whole area of trading, in fact, because you know, Swift, Swift had shown some interest in that. And uh, it happened, you know, news started creeping out that morning. I was in Vienna at the time, after the, you know, after the, uh, the session, we all kind of withdrew to the green room. And uh, I was sitting there having my coffee and I clearly heard at least one of the brokers that had been sitting with me on the phone with a headhunter going through his CV because he thought they were next. Okay. Now, that was a huge event that shook the whole financial markets. Yeah. And I think one thing, if I take it back to the trade, at the time, I remember you know coming in, everyone would respond, and everyone th- thought the world was going to end, but you know nothing really ever goes to zero. And I, I looked upon it as a, as a huge opp- opportunity. Because the one thing the major brokers could no longer do was this whole area of capital commitment. Prior to that, that, that almost locked people into those relationships if you're, if you're one of the bold bracket firms. Suddenly overnight, they weren't offering capital commitment to anyone. And that was seized upon as a huge opportunity for agency brokers. Yeah. You know, the internets, the ITGs of the world. Mm-hmm. So I think, and the trade benefited from this in terms of its customer base. You actually saw these you know, behemoths that, that destroyed the market Again, because of that capital commitment, because of that, that, that extra, you know, the cherry on the cake they could offer to any buy-side customer to the transaction, transacting a deal to them. Actually, it became a level playing field overnight. And lots of agency brokers really kind of made their mark and people without working within those institutions made their, their mark at, at that time. And actually, just from a business model point of view, we went, you know, we went from, from something you know, existing on the basis of about 25 to 30 clients to about 80 clients in the space of 12 months as a result of that. Um, I mean, I think in terms of the development of algorithmic trading, um, the most important thing probably has nothing to do with algorithmic trading per se, and that is the development of execution management systems. Right. Uh, Because automation within asset management companies, such as it was, and it wasn't that much in many of them at all, uh, was very much uh, focused on portfolio management systems uh, and the trading aspect of the outcome from those portfolio management systems, the rebalancing that went on, the investment of new money and so on and so forth, uh, that was still largely manual. And without that being successfully automated, algorithms would never really have taken off. And the reason for that is that most of the brokers, to the extent they were offering them, started with their own proprietary systems. So mm. you have Morgan Stanley with Passport, you have Goldman Sachs with Ready, uh, and in order to enable some of the agency brokers to compete effectively, they actually didn't have the order flow to support the development of their own proprietary execution management system. So they needed something that could be multi-broker. 
Um, and what emerged were some people who are still serious players in the market, like Trading Screen and others, who recognised um, and actually put a de facto consortium of uh, smaller sell-side players together and said, you need a system and this is the way to do it. <clears throat> and the only way that the EMSs could work was because of fix. And arguably the biggest thing that's affected this industry uh, is the creation of fix between Fidelity and Salomon Brothers uh, way back when, I can't remember how long ago it is now, <clears throat> but that was along the lines of they were sending faxes to one another, rekeying stuff, faxes got lost, nothing worked. Uh, and someone basically created a, a protocol. <clears throat> and then interestingly enough, Salmon Brothers, who effectively paid for its creation, were obliged by Fidelity to open it up for use by everybody. Mm. So originally it was a proprietary formatted telecommunications link, uh, and suddenly it became a standard. Uh, and because you had a standard, or as close as the financial services industry ever gets to a standard, you had a standard means of communicating orders and executions, uh, you had the ability to run algorithms effectively. Without fix, it wouldn't work. Okay. Yeah. Uh while John and Robert were talking, I've been hacking my way through the mental <laughs> to, to try and get back to, to it. I'm not sure what were the biggest um, events other than those mentioned by uh, John and Robert, but the thing that I remember being most intrigued about from a journalistic point of view was really the foundation of LiquidNet. Okay. The idea of two of being able to do deals between two buy-side desks without a um, traditional broker playing the role that they used to play. Yeah. I think that had a lot to do with changing the mindset of what was possible. Okay. Interesting that nobody mentioned Mifid 1. Why not? Oh, well, we take it for granted that was the most <laughs> exciting thing that ever well, happened. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, you know, there's, there's going to be an ever-continuing stream of regulation going yeah. forward, and, I, you know, I think, you know, if we were to look, I don't want to jump ahead, because you probably kind of set out the questions you want to ask, uh, but if we were to talk about the future, it's, it's the impact of regulation. I mean, the only aside I would say is that I do remember, before Mifid One, speaking to a head of desk, who remain unnamed, uh, one, one major buy-side firm, who's, who kind of looked, said, ah, Mifid won't affect my business at all mm. and that was his opinion on it and that's all regulation has done ever since yeah affect businesses okay interesting we can say some of the future predictions for the trade 100 talk in, uh, in another 10 years <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> MIFID 5 and 6 <laughs> so yeah, we talked about the origins there a bit yeah, how did it evolve over the, the kind of next the coming years after after the launch you know, obviously we've seen things like the trade Asia and trade derivatives and Leaders in trading event, which has been very successful over the last few years. You know, how did from issue twenty five onwards, let's say, how did it kind of? I, I think it basically followed the industry. So we never really did very much in North America because by the time the trade was started, uh, algorithmic trading and electronic trading in the U.S. market, in particular, was reasonably well established mm -hmm. and was covered by a number of publications. 
Um, but those techniques were being exported first to Europe, which was the next big market, which was necessarily much more complicated uh, than North America for all sorts of reasons. <coughs> and then subsequently, the business moved to Asia. So that became the focus of everybody's attention. That's where the new market opportunities were. Uh, and then it moved on from equities. Uh, quite simply, equities were the first thing that people put into algorithms and then they followed that with derivatives. Um, and actually, if you look at the evolution of execution management systems, come back to my last point, that's the way they went too. They were all equity systems. Indeed, Ready still is basically an equity system. Uh, they all tried to go global. They all started in the US. Again, Ready started as a division of Spearleads and Kellogg, uh, which Goldman Sachs bought, and it was their means of communicating orders to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. That's what it was. Um, so they all went global. Um, and in particular to Asia, and then they all went into multi-asset class. And all the trade has done is follow that, I would say. Yeah, as far as the actual publications, they were primarily John's idea when the individual publications came on stream, and I don't, I don't remember why. Well, no, well, what, I think one of the things with this, I mean, again, I couldn't agree more with Robert's point, because you know, the direction we went was all, it was all already painted for us mm. that path. Mm. Um, you know, Robert's gone through, you know, that moved to multi-asset from equity and so on and so forth. But, but one, of the, one of the unique aspects of this whole business is the way that the players within the business, both on the sell side and the buy side, kind of regionalize that business to, 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 to a huge extent. I mean, you know, I remember being in Hong Kong once, kind of uh, speaking to a, to, to a major broker um, and I was conducting an interview and it actually had the head of Asia Pac and the head of Japan because yes they were in fairly similar time zones but you'd have to do two interviews because the way they ran the business in Japan was fundamentally different from how they ran it in Asia Pac and while the the commonality with all with all the markets and the issues that we covered are, you know I you mentioned method and regulation uh, obviously the kind of you know when you when you look at um, you know, when, when you look at the emergence of crossing networks over in Europe, I mean, you just go back to ECNs in, in the US, uh, the precursor for that. Um, again, with regulation, you know, regulation would flow from North America through to, to, to the, European, you know, the European Union. And though the same regulations wouldn't spring up in Asia, there was certainly a regulatory undercurrent because the same institutions were there dealing for the same buy side, you know, global buy side players that wanted the same standard of service, whether they're the algorithm, dumples, whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I would I would actually, yeah, I would actually say it's been very easy for us to look at Europe, look at Asia. We even had an emerging market issue where we look at the Middle East and, and, and Africa and, and so on. So both by geography and by content of coverage, it's just followed the industry, which has been very fluid over the last mm -hmm. 12 years. Mm. Yeah, you know, interspersed by various crises. You know, flash crash, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. okay. I, mean, I suppose for us, uh, in, our, in our perspective today, continuing that on, um, it's probably largely painted by we don't really know where the industry's going. I don't think half the industry knows where it's going right now in terms of the regulatory environment. And we're still sitting here a little over a year away from the introduction of MIFID 2, which is. Uh, yeah, probably far more transformative than MIFID 1 ever was in terms of how the industry goes. I definitely think there's a, a parallel with the financial crisis, which you mentioned about the agency brokers benefiting. Certainly looks that way uh, right now. Um, 
and there's a lot of new players in the market sort of you know technology companies in particular are coming up with a whole range of new ideas that you know, effectively replace whole swathes of business that, that was once done by the investment bank um, but I think for us you know it would be very interesting to see how over the next you know three four years how much change that has and, and I guess probably some of you at that time you could never really quite tell where it was gonna where it was gonna take you you knew something was, was changing but where's it gonna go well, I think you have to actually look at the role of the trader and what the trader does as mm. well. Because I think going into the future, they might, they, they might find their day job is changing alarmingly, alarmingly because, you know, you mentioned with the two, the extent to which they have to kind of have one eye on compliance with everything they're doing. You know, the days when a trader could just sit there and trade are probably long gone. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many scandals. Uh, there's so much regulatory focus on compliance. That's probably why none of us picked out one particular version of MIFID, because mm. there's a whole swathe of regulation mm. coming being brought to bear. And I think predictions of the future is, you know, what is the traders, you know, how how is the traders' day going to change? Because it certainly has changed from equities to multi-asset to uh, having to, you know, deal with 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 clearing the noise, using algorithms to clear the noise, to liquidity seeking, and so on and so forth. Um, but you know, to what extent is the trader going to spend a good part of his day worrying about compliance issues? And I think that's actually going to reach, there is going to be a breaking point sometime in the next couple of years where a lot of firms have spent so much money on compliance or pouring more and more resources into compliance and some starving other bits of the business in a way yeah. of uh, of the funds that they need to expand. And sooner or later, someone's gonna say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore, or whatever the equivalent phrase is, and I don't know what will happen after that. Okay. Interesting. Um, now, there's been a lot of characters featured on the on the front cover of the trade, uh, a lot of characters that I'm sure we've all met in the industry. Uh, perhaps each of you might like to give me your favorite who was your, your favourite trade star? You've got 50 issues to do Or anyone that particularly <laughs> contributed to the magazine over the course okay, of... Okay, well, Mark Mobius, or, or, uh, well, he wasn't a trader. He was... He featured uh, in the first, he feature, yeah. first or second uh, issue. He was always fun yeah. to, yeah. 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 to engage with. Yeah. I, I think I think there's two people that, uh, um, that kind of stand out for me. Um, and what, one sell side and one buy side. On the buy side, I'd say Tony Wally, because it, you know he, he. And why I say this, I go back to the very roots of the trade. You know, the, these are the people that were the big supporters of what we were trying to achieve. Yeah. And without that level of support, we wouldn't have gone anywhere. And Tony Wally was was, was a, a significant supporter of what we were trying to do. He really, really embraced the concept that we were a voice for the buy side, and could actually actually further the agenda. That they wanted to put out into the marketplace, and Richard Balakis, because you know I, I do remember you know, he was at Credit Suisse at the time before he became the CEO of Internet Europe, and I remember I think it was it was it was issue three. My, my phone rang one day. I misjudged the kind of traction we're getting, and it was the kind of the person in, in charge you know, who headed up the kind of kind of uh, the electronic trading division for Credit Suisse, who were the market leader at that time. Uh, we had a long discussion, interview about algorithmic trading, where it was going. There was a, in those days, you could write about the lack of education in the market. Now, no one wants to hear about algos anymore. 
Um, everyone understands how they how, how they tick or what they do. Um, and he then said, "Well, how do we get more involved with your with your publication?" And as soon as you got Credit Suisse, then other people started. Look, I remember saying to our sales team, actually, you know, what once you know we've arrived once we've got Goldman Sachs to advertise. I think Goldman Sachs took the back cover by issue six. Yeah. So, so you know, for me, it's the people, the characters that stand out, the people that believed in what we were trying to do and supported us in those early, early days. And on the buy side, that would be Tony Wally. On the sell side, Richard Balakis. Okay, appropriate perhaps yeah. they were the uh, the last two editions are um, uh, receiving our uh, lifetime achievement awards as well. Uh, yeah, I might have had some hand, <laughs> <laughs> but well deserved and um, uh, another well deserved uh, winner this year, which we will no doubt be announcing very soon. Um, I guess that kind of brings us on perhaps to the leaders in trading event. Uh, it's coming up a little bit later this month, but where did that uh, start? Where did you where did you sort of first decide that it was appropriate to award people in the industry for what they're doing? Well, I think the, the, the first thing is you, you need some sort of basis on which to make your award. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've just got editorial, that's actually quite difficult. It, it becomes a sort of choice about who you like best or yeah. whatever. Um, so I think that actually the awards owed their existence to the creation of the survey um, and the fact that we put the survey in and we actually asked the buy side what they thought about different sell side performance yeah. uh, in different areas and we were able then to make a reasonably objective assessment of who was doing a particularly good job in a particular uh, aspect of service. So that gave us a framework within which you could have the awards and after that you just have to decide whether people want to have a party or not. Um, and I think that, um, th- again, the interesting thing was that it was becoming increasing, you know, corporate entertainment has become ever more difficult to uh, support and get through compliance. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it was actually quite difficult to uh engage with clients but it was also difficult even to engage internally so an awards dinner was actually a good excuse for a lot of people to um, have a party uh, which was good and I think the the initiative of actually um, the trade inviting the buy side which makes the invitation neutral uh, has also undoubtedly transformed uh, the event I think because again you have the difficulty in all these awards if I'm the head trader of um, AXA, then I'm dealing with 10 brokers. If I accept Morgan Stanley's invitation, then do I upset Goldman Sachs or whoever? Um, and so for a lot of people, and equally, if I'm, if I'm a hedge fund and I'm, I've got Morgan Stanley as my prime broker, do I really want them to invite them along to have somebody from Goldman Sachs bend their ear for the whole evening? So I think it's actually very effective that the magazine is inviting effectively in its own name by side traders. And I think that that is actually transformational in terms of the event itself. Yeah, and certainly the buy side support has, has only continued to grow. And uh, I think we're expecting we could have as many as 100 buy side traders this year. So, right, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that support and, and I suppose, yeah, like you say, that uh, ability to come out and see us as a, yep. as a kind of neutral third party rather than have to directly uh, go and um, inf- go to a broker's party is, uh, mm-hmm. it does make all the yep. difference. 
So let me turn this back on you. You're going to yeah. hate, hate me for this, but I, I, I used to be a hack. So <laughs> what are your predictions for the future of the trade since it's now in your hands? It's an interesting one. Um, I definitely think, well, I know that we'll be doing a lot more digitally. I mean, you know, we're here on a podcast right now, um, which has only been going since the beginning of this year. Is it going to go on a CD with the magazine? I don't, <laughs> I don't think we'll be doing that. It would, it would have to be a USB sticker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're uh, yeah we're going to be doing more online, absolutely, because uh, that's the direction of travel of the of the publishing industry in general. And I think you know, in this day and age, people don't want to wait till you know the end of the quarter to find out what's going on and get the latest. You know, we need to know it now. Um, and I suppose much in in the in sort of spirit of the industry moving into electronic means rather than you know phones and faxes and all this kind of rather old fashioned stuff as it might seem now. Um, the, the same in the way that they want to get content from us you know it's got to be electronic it's got to be there like that travelling at the speed of light I think topically the use of technology fintech regtech or uh, very popular at the moment could be talking a lot more in the next 5-10 years about the use of artificial intelligence robot advisors blockchain things like that so and I, 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 well I think the interesting, one of the interesting things is going to be how the people side develops I mean it used to be the case the portfolio managers did their own trading. Mm. And then there was the view, um, particularly uh, among the long only uh, traditional uh, buy side firms, that actually portfolio managers weren't very good at trading, didn't necessarily have the skills for trading, and it, and it was a, an activity that required specialized skills. So everybody set up central trading desks, which were very manual, which have now become automated, the question arises with artificial intelligence and everything and and more and more sophisticated algorithms well actually you've de-skilled it almost to the point where the portfolio managers could do it for themselves um you know if you know what you want to do and all you're going to do <coughs> is press a button do you really need to have someone else press the button mm. uh, and if you've got something on your screen that tells you to speed up or slow down or whatever or the broker does uh, again you have to ask yourself uh, how much um, specialist skill is required. So I think it will be interesting to see what the role of a buy-side trading desk evolves to be. Uh, yeah, I think the, probably the, the key things there will be what will you need from a yep. compliance perspective yep. because is a regulator likely to sit there and go, no, you can let an algorithm run the entire yep. thing? I don't think they will. Well, uh, do, you, do you know, I, I'm actually of the view that it's always been about clearing the noise. Mm. Even with AI, there might be more noise you can clear, but you're never going to clear all of it. Yeah. So I think there will always be a role for traders in, in, in that respect. As I said previously, I think the major change will be, you know, what is a trader? You know, to what extent it does compliance become their stocking traders? Does everyone working in financial markets who are dealing in value have to actually also be trained in compliance, even if they're adhering to a, you know, a chief compliance officer that's further up, further up in within an organisation. You know, that, how's the day job going to change? Yeah, I, I, and I think as well, there's always, to some extent, going to be those very sensitive, very complicated trades, uh, particularly in certain asset mm -hmm. classes. You know, there's a lot of talk that fixed income in a large part isn't very appropriate for electronic trading maybe that will change in the future but right now it certainly seems a long way away 
Um, but there's always going to be those things which need that little extra care and attention perhaps that an owl can't provide. Uh, and then also similarly, you've got to have somebody who sits there and goes, well, what is our algo strategy? What mix of algos mm-hmm. are we going to use? You know, what are our priorities? Is it speed? Is it price? Is it size? Somebody's got to sit there and go, that's it. And, and again, going back to what you said about the portfolio manager, is, is they, are they the best person to kind of do that? Because probably they're going to prioritize certain things that aren't necessarily appropriate to a given situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would agree with John. I think the role is going to change, it's going to develop, it's going to become less about, you know, actually doing that trade and more, I suppose, taking that macro view of, you know, how do we trade, how do we operate, how do we control it and comply with the regulation. Yes, and, you know, and actually, you know, having chosen what algorithm you're going to use, then having chosen that and knowing I mean, the full knowledge that you then have to go back to the regulator to explain why you use that algorithm yeah. from this broker. You know, and that you know that that's that's what's going to be run, that's the dialogue we're running in the back of everyone's mind when they do that. There is so much kind of regulatory oversight at this stage. It'll and be interesting so to see if there's a transfer of skills to regulators because clearly they are ill-equipped to keep on top of all the things that they're asking people to comply with. Mm. I would say. But that's the issue of our time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well. I think that's all we've got time for, but thank you very much, gents. It's been uh, absolutely wonderful to to take that trip down uh, memory lane. Now, uh, we do have a little bit of housekeeping before we wrap up. Um, Just want to remind everybody that uh, Leaders in Trading will be taking place on the 16th of November at the Savoy Hotel. Uh, It promises to be uh, a great evening uh, filled with awards, drinks, food. Mm-hmm. all the things traders like are here uh, so please do uh, check out the trade website for that uh, and we've also got um, some other events coming up a uh, webinar on ETFs uh, you can find out more info on that on our events page as well um, and I think that's everything John yep that's about it okay brilliant well thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs>